0: Valerie Dalton, founder and artistic director of The Live Literature Company. Welcome to episode three in our series on war, which we are releasing to mark VJ Day on September the 2nd. Those who listened to our VJ Day podcast last year will know that my father wrote a book, The Fighting Cock, being the history of the 23rd Indian Division, 1942 to 1947, by Lieutenant Colonel A.J.F. Dalton, O.B.E. The dedication in this is To all those who wore the fighting cock, officers and men, British and Indian, living and dead. This episode also continues my own voyage round my father. For, like many after returning home from World War Two, Dad never talked to us about that horrific war. The hardship and suffering these men endured in the jungle was immense. I'm reading passages which describe the conditions they endured while preventing the Japanese from crossing the border from Burma into India. The refugee tragedy Dad describes resonates powerfully with our own refugee tragedy in today's world. The recent Live Literature Company event I staged at Amnesty International's Human Rights Action Centre was titled On the Move and concerned the plight of refugees. Chapter 3 into the breach, on May the sixth, nineteen forty-two, General Savory produced an operation order. The twenty-third Indian Division will a stop the Japanese invading India, and b defeat them if they do. Later that same month, on May the twenty-third, he issued another order, and it read one the Burma army has passed through. Two, the 23rd Indian division is now charged with the defense of this part of the frontier of India. Three, the following will be borne in mind by every man of the division. A, the safety of India depends on you. B, the enemy will be constantly watched by day and night. C. He will be outflanked and surrounded whenever possible and destroyed. D, there will be no withdrawal. There will be no withdrawal. That was a stark prospect that faced those who stood in the breach. It is clear that had the Japanese been able to muster their strength for an immediate sally in force across the Chindwin, However gallantly the Shenam defences had been held, they must have been overwhelmed. There were no anti-tank mines, no sandbags, no wire to strengthen these defences, and there was no artillery support. Chapter 4 The Breach Fills Slowly The first of the refugees had come in with the head of the Burma army, the forerunners of a second army retreating before the Japanese. But these knew not discipline, nor had they officers to turn to for orders. Theirs was no controlled withdrawal. They came past Shenem, at first in their hundreds each day, then in their thousands, with only one thought in their minds, They longed for safety, and many were past caring even for this. They were in ghastly plight. Hardly knowing from what they fled, they had left their homes, taking with them the few possessions that they could carry, without thought for the morrow. Many would have fared better had they stayed behind to face a Japanese occupation, but they were caught by the frenzy of the moment, Some had heard the sounds of war, some had heard rumours of brutality. They saw men, women and children on the move, and they rushed out to join the throng. They came from all parts of Burma, and all had been on the road for days, just walking on and on in search of safety, hoping they would find somewhere the means to stave off starvation. The ordeal was too great for many, who staggered on until their strength could endure no longer, when they lay where their last step took them beside the roads and tracks. Some, too, fell an easy prey to the dacoits who hovered like beasts of prey around the columns, ready to swoop in for the kill and plunder. As our patrols began to move out in June, They found the tracks littered with the decayed corpses of these wretches. Many others died when they had grasped safety. They came through our lines emaciated with hunger, clad in rags without covering for their feet, their bodies a mass of sores, riddled with all the common diseases of the East. Weakened by the ravages of cholera, dysentery, smallpox and malaria, their strength overtaxed. They were the wrecks of human beings. By May 15th, the stream had become a flood. A week later, the civilian resources for relief had been overwhelmed, and it fell upon the army to render such help as was within their power. When 5,000 refugees arrived at Shenham on May 24th, there was no food to be had except from army stocks which had not been prepared to help starving refugees. The three tons of rice sacrificed for their use sufficed to provide two days' food for the host. But these people needed more than daily sustenance. They were worn out and needed rest. They were sick in body and mind and needed medical attention and careful feeding. We were in no position to give any of these for, with the danger of a Japanese advance always to be borne in mind, the army had to have the forward areas clear with all possible speed. Utterly exhausted though they were, the refugees had to move on, and as there was not enough transport, many had to continue their trek. On the 25th, there were two dozen lorries, each with a capacity of 20, available to shift five thousand. It was pathetic that these wretches should have again to stumble out onto the road, but there was no help for it, and those who watched could only echo the words at the end of the general's signal, wish I could do more to help. It fell to the seaforths to find the parties needed to bury the corpses which lay by the road back to Imphel. As the month of June advanced, The parties became smaller and arrived at wider intervals, but they were, if possible, in an even more miserable condition than those who had gone before, and they seemed to have suffered more on the way. Out of a band of sixteen hundred who had set out from Katha, the survivors numbered a bare four hundred, and a party of coolies who had been made to work for the Japanese at Bamo had lost a third of their strength. These later arrivals brought with them stories of Jap atrocities. One had seen a man beaten to death for refusing to work. Others described how the Japs swooped down onto villages like locusts and pillaged all that was worth taking. There is nothing but pitiless tragedy in the tale of the retreat of this second army from Burma. For us it was almost over by the end of June and we were left with the jungle to ourselves. The country east of the Inful Plain where we were to hold and patrol, and through which the refugees had struggled to safety, is tremendous in its grandeur. It is as though nature had fashioned there a vast fastness over which she was to rule in undisputed might, defying man to penetrate her domain. For her stronghold, she has chosen a great chain of mountain ridges running roughly from north to south, thrusting their strength into the sky in a series of gigantic folds which rise and fall, sheer to the valleys between. They were a mass of crags and precipices, and they were covered with dense jungle. That was part of nature's cunning in this country of drenching rain and humid atmosphere, where her fruits flourish abundantly. The trunks of trees packed close together rise far above the heads of man, driving upwards to the light, vying with each other for the rays of the sun. These tiring trees provide the hold for creepers of every kind, which twine their tendrils round the boles, crawl up them, snatch at support among the branches, and trail their spidery arms down again to the earth from which they sprung. Often those who stray off the few tracks that thread this tangled maze can progress only by hacking their way through with the knife. Down in the valleys run the rivers or changs, pleasant streams sparkling in the midday sun during the dry season, but torrents of wrath when the monsoon bursts. From the beginning of June the rains hurtle out of the skies, sheets of rain, the like of which a western eye never beholds, and the wind roars among the forests. The nights are cold, then, at the top of those four thousand foot peaks, and the body is never dry. And though the air is drier, they are cold at the turn of the year when the valleys are filled with mist, like a carpet of snow until late in the morning. For all its grandeur, this is inhospitable country, far from the ways of men where nature, untamed, is mistress and civilization seems thousands of miles away. London, Manchester and Glasgow are but dreams. Somehow the Nagas find a living there, small folk, wonderfully cheerful, with a smile always playing about their lips. Not long ago he was accounted the greatest among them, who could point to the most numerous collection of heads adorning the mantelpiece of his hovel. But they have given up this unfriendly interchange of heads, and now dwell in peace and squalor in their small villages, always set for safety on the mountain tops. By the day they come down from the peaks to fish in the valleys and till their fields, As the sun goes down, they wander back up thousands of feet to their villages. For a short while, they resented our intrusion into their privacy, and there was between us an early dispute over a mule which ended in the death of two of their number. But they soon came to know us and became our friends, providing labor for our road-making and guides for our patrols. We owe much to their unswerving loyalty and to the Kukis, a warrior race, whose lands fringe Shenam. The concentration of the division was further impeded, when on June 19th, the main road from Manipur Road to Imphal collapsed at the 42nd milestone. There was to be a time when the skill of the sappers and the labour of the countless coolies were to turn the track into a metalled highway that would defy the elements. Its early dangers have been described. It was a temperamental fickle beast as well. The cliffside, loosened by the rains and shaken by the passage of heavy lorries, would come sliding down onto the road and hundreds of tons of earth would block the way. Or, if the worst occurred, cliff and road would go tumbling down into the valley below. When the road collapsed... We could not turn to bulldozers and other mechanical contrivances for assistance, as these were among the non-arrivals. The repairs had to be done with the sweat of men's brows and the paltry aid of picks and shovels. For week after week, men toiled away at the beast and all the time Inful was cut off from the outside world with the scanty forces assembled for its defence awaiting the Japanese. Mud and rain, masters of the front, involved all ranks in a hard, thankless battle with the elements. Never a day passed without torrents of rain. The rain washed away the bridges. Three collapsed between Imphal and Shanam. And the rain in the wheels of vehicles churned the roads into mud. Real mud. None of that squelchy stuff where the ooze may come over the top of souls. But a thick cloying substance feet deep into which vehicles sank up to their axles with the engines groaning in protest as they struggled to be free. It took one troop of 158 forward regiment ordered up to the Shanam defences the day after their arrival at Imphal on the 15th seven days to complete the 40 miles and they hauled their guns into position only by winching them every yard of the last ten miles. The defences were further stiffened by the arrival of two batteries of 28 Mountain Regiment, hastily formed from artillery units of the Burma Army and destined to serve with us until our return to India, a battery of Bofos and a troop of anti-tank guns. Come wind, come rain, come Jap, The division was ready and the breach had filled slowly, though it would be wrong to give the impression that our strength was adequate for the defence of the Inful Plain. About 20,000 men stood on the frontier of Burma and Assam, almost all of them without battle experience, and many of them only partially trained. They had come to some of the fiercest country in the world at the height of the monsoon. Thank you for listening to this Live Literature Company podcast. Many years after the end of World War Two, a Japanese delegation visited London and asked to meet Daddy. It must have been a very hard decision for Dad, but he did agree to meet them. As we know, many have never forgiven the Japanese for what they did in World War II. My mother and I watched him leave our family home in Devon that day to meet them, like the soldier he had been in World War II. But I now understand his war experience affected how he was for the whole of the rest of his life. He did not have the fortune of Sir Captain Tom, who also fought in Burma, to live to a hundred years old. But when I watched Sir Captain Tom, he reminded me of Dad's brave cheerfulness If you like our podcast, please click to follow us and visit the Live Literature Company. I'd like to close, as I did last year, with Binion's words, which we say every year on Remembrance Day, at the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we will remember them.